Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Hi. So uh, thanks for coming out to Skylight Books. You might have noticed they're making a documentary about me on the street out front. So if you, if you get stopped, just tell them you know nice things and that I was exceedingly funny and handsome and all those things. That would be nice. Skylight Books has been here for 16 years, if you can believe that, and I've actually been here just as long. Um, I'm the manager here now, and so I like to tell people that there's a bookstore here, but there's also one next next door if you don't know about that. Probably all of you do because you guys are readers and book lovers. So, But there is one next door if you haven't been there. Please check it out. It's our second story next door full of wonderful art books and graphic novels and all kinds of things like that. Um, I wanted to ask you if you would turn off any noise making devices. Um, if it's really a, a device that's super quiet, you can take a picture of Ryan and tweet it or something. But, uh, you know, try not to interrupt. Please. Upcoming events we have here. We do events, well, we just kind of started doing events again. We had this crazy conference we worked at, and, um, you know, I, I dealt with a lot of people who I don't, th you know, they, I don't think they've ever been in a bookstore before. You know, a lot of people forget what bookstores are. In fact, people say something like, oh, it's like being in a record store used to be. And it's like, well, well no, it's like being what a, in a bookstore used to be. <laughs> it's the same as that. But anyway, so I'm glad you're here and seen it in a bookstore, and I appreciate you guys coming in and supporting us. Um, so we do a lot of events here to remind people that we are a bookstore. And on Thursday, March 14th, tomorrow, at 7.30, another SoCal author, Jim Gavin, is going to be here. Um, Middleman is his book. It's right here. It's not like Mad Men. It's Middleman. I know it looks kind of like it because of the, this stuff, but it's... <laughs> Anyway, it's short stories, and actually it's one of the books, um, I love short stories, and I haven't read any of it yet, and I really want, I want to look at it because some of my uh, coworkers have already told me that it's, that's Steve, you're going to love this book, so I'm excited about that. And then also on Sunday coming up, St. Patrick's Day, uh, Larchmont Charter School, um, they came down here one day when we had John Klassen, has anybody read um, I Want My Hat Back? 
Have you seen that book? It's one of the best like children's books that came out in the last two years. And he had a new one come out. And um, so these uh, fourth and fifth graders came down for that. And they were so excited by the idea of a reading that they wanted to put one on themselves. So they're going to come in on Sunday at 4 o'clock and do it um, on St. Patrick's Day. So if you're in the neighborhood drinking green beer and you might be confused and think that maybe there's a little leprechauns reading up there, come on over and we'll be here. Uh, let's see what else I need to tell you. That's nothing important. Uh, well, tonight, we're happy to have uh, Ryan, Ryan McElvain here. Um, it's a debut novel. Uh, the book's called Elders. Uh, two very uh, good Skylight friends, uh, T.C. Boyle and Amy Bender, have praised this book. And they've used words like powerful and deeply moving, fascinating, and memorable. And I, I do trust those people, so I think it's all those things. Uh, is this true? Actually, I didn't check this with you. Are you currently studying towards a doctorate in literature at USC? Yeah. Congratulations, that's awesome. Um, so he's currently studying towards a doctorate in literature at USC, and he's brought <laughs> lots of food and drink here for us to hang out with. So he's going to read for a bit. He's going to take some questions from you all, and then we'll do a signing. You, you can buy the books up there, and we'll line up, and we'll have a table for him to sit at and sign your books. But meanwhile, please help me w welcome Ryan McElvain. And, and during the signing, the, the food and drink will be available. Um, and that's by design. We think you're more likely to buy the book if you're under the influence. Um, well, it's really cool to, to see so many uh, friends and um, uh, new faces. And this is a beautiful space. So thanks so much to Skylight for, for hosting us. And uh, many happy returns. Um, Literature is a big conversation, as you know, and uh, it stretches all the way back to, to God, who was the first novelist, and people have been riffing off his language ever since. Um, but I wanted to invite, briefly, uh, one of the elder statesmen of 20th century literature into the conversation to begin, uh, Borges. He was a short fiction writer, but also a wonderful poet. And he has this lovely poem that I wanted to read. It's called Break of Day. Break of day. In the deep night of the universe, scarcely contradicted by the street lamps, a lost gust of wind has offended the taciturn streets like the trembling premonition of the horrible dawn that prowls the ruined suburbs of the world. Curious about the shadows and daunted by the threat of dawn, I recalled the dreadful conjecture of Schopenhauer and Berkeley, which declares that the world is a mental activity a dream of souls, without foundation, purpose, weight, or shape. And since ideas are not eternal like marble, but immortal like a forest or a river, the preceding doctrine assumed another form as the sun rose, and in the superstition of that hour, when light like a climbing vine begins to implicate the shadowed walls, my reason gave way and sketched the following fancy. If things are void of substance, and if this teeming Buenos Aires is no more than a dream made up by souls in a common act of magic, there is an instant when its existence is gravely endangered, and that is the shuddering instant of daybreak, when those who are dreaming the world are few, and only the ones who have been up all night retain, ashen and barely outlined, the image of the streets that later others will define. The hour when the tenacious stream of life runs the risk of being smashed to pieces. The hour when it would be easy for God to level his whole handiwork. But again the world has been spared. 
Light roams the streets inventing dirty colors, and with a certain remorse for my complicity in the day's rebirth, I ask my house to exist, amazed and icy in the white light, as one bird halts the silence and the spent night stays on in the eyes of the blind. So it's a beautiful poem, and particularly poignant when we remember that Borges himself was, was blind. Um, but I, I like the poem for its own sake, of course, but also as a kind of analogy, a grand metaphor for what fiction does. Um, it, it puts forth these streets and this, this universe that we have to define ourselves, and we uphold it in a common act of magic, a suspension of disbelief. We invest our own, um, our own experiences and our imaginations in creating the story, and we're going to do a little of that tonight with the beginning of my book, and, and here's, hope it, here's hoping it goes as well, but um, it's, just, it's, a, it's a beautiful thought, and uh, it reminds me why, why literature is a worthwhile activity. So I'll just start from the very beginning, and uh, the streets will be ashen and, and dimly defined, but, but hopefully they'll start to take shape for us. Elders. On an airless midsummer afternoon in Brazil, in the close crucible heat of that country, Elder McLeod trailed his senior companion onto a street that looked just like the last one, and the last, and the last. Nothing moved, or nothing animate anyway. A soda can rocking on its side, dust scrims, the whites on clotheslines ghosting up above orange brick property walls lined with beer bottle shards. Even the gutters looked abandoned, shorn of moisture, a blonde sedimentary braid running parallel to each cracking slab of sidewalk. McLeod watched Elder Passos peel off to the left of him, and for a moment all he wanted in the world was to keep walking, epically, all the way back to Massachusetts and the life he had left and the life he ached to have back. He could just ditch the last six months of his mission, light out for home. Elder? Elder McLeod, hello? The voice came from behind him, rapid and insistent, already it graded on McLeod. He stopped. He turned his head half around, a half show of resistance, but enough to see his senior companion sidled up to yet another door, waiting, gripping the doorframe with his hand even, like a stubborn child in the toy aisle. It's your turn, Paso said, right? He motioned his head at the door, which looked just like the last one and the last, older than the tin it was made of, once blue or green or yellow, but now faded and dusted, sun-scored, a blue-gray, the color of dirty mop water. Elder McLeod stared at the door and clenched his teeth out of a sort of slow reflex. And on his slump day, too, he thought. That was the worst part. He thought, five minutes. I'll knock for just five more minutes. He looked down at his wristwatch, 3.02. Ten minutes, at the very most. McLeod backed up until he stood beside Passos at the door. He rapped on the thin metal, a thin warping sound, and out of the corner of his eye he watched Passos watching. They'd only been together for a week, and the force of Passos's earnestness, his sheer newness, could still startle McLeod. Look at him now. Yellow-brown, tall and lanky, his face like a tapering ear of corn, and in the center of it, a smile. Big-wadded, toothy. At every door, Paso smiled like that, a sort of insurance policy, McLeod thought, in the off chance that someone actually came to a door. After several unpromising seconds at this one, Paso's smile remained bright. How long have you been out again? McLeod asked him. 
Huh? Oh, 16 months almost. Congratulations, he said. But he laughed as he said it. A thin, tight laugh. Bada Baines. He pushed air through his nose, shook his head, and stepped away from the door, not waiting to make sure no one was coming. If someone was going to come to a door, you heard it early. Heard movement in the house or in the yard. Someone shushing the dog, maybe. Someone calling out, who is it? Or someone rushing up to peer through the gap between the brick wall and the outer door, then calling for a parent. A mother, usually. It happened quick. You didn't need to stand around, a hopeful debutante, holding a smile for full minutes. Did Passos really not know that? The boy wonder? The climber who had made zone leader at only 11 months out? Elder McLeod waited, half turned again, and now he noticed the shadow of a frown on Passos's face. Nobody's coming, McLeod said. I was just making sure, Passos said. The elders finished, you know what? I've never done this before. I've never taken a sip <laughs> at a section break, but I'm doing it. <laughs> All right. Okay. The elders finished knocking the street, every door a no-show, and started right into the next street. More no-shows, more smiles from Passos. McLeod wanted to throw his head back and laugh. Instead, he slowed his pace, then stopped, looking down at his wristwatch, 3.08. When he looked up again, the world was still the same, everlastingly the same. The dust grims, the whites on clotheslines, the property walls bristling with colored glass, rows of sharp, bared teeth. He could hear the river in the distance now, but only just. At a sudden gust of wind, a pair of blue jeans kicked up above the property wall to McLeod's left. He thought of the old dress pants he'd laid out on his bedspread this morning, a threadbare sacrifice, waiting to be burned, a tradition, a rite, which he would duly observe tonight with Sweeney and Kimball. He hadn't seen them in a week, not since transfers and the news that they would both become senior companions at last. He expected they would razz him, the eternal junior, and that they'd see through his good riddance routine. It did gall McLeod that he had to take orders now from someone with less experience on the mission and with no knowledge of Cariña at all, the city McLeod had served in for the last six months. But Elder Passos played the game. McLeod didn't. Passos stooped to the game. McLeod wouldn't. Over the sound of the river came a different kind of coursing, much louder and nearer to McLeod. His senior companion stood to his right, upending a squeeze water bottle above his mouth. The bottle exhaled as Passos lowered it, replaced it in his bag. He wiped his lips with the back of his hand, then nodded at McLeod and started for the next door. Really, McLeod said. Passos turned around. What? Today's my slump day, man, and nobody's answering. Your slump day, Passos said. You don't know what slump day is? Are you really that? I know what it is, Elder McLeod. It's unbecoming of a missionary. That's what President Mason said at the last Zone Leaders Conference. No more crass names to mark so-called occasions. No more burning perfectly good clothes either. Didn't your last Zone Leader communicate that? He communicated a lot of things, McLeod said, laying emphasis on the procedural speak he already disliked in Passos. He stared at him for a long, hard second. Then he changed his tack. Elder Passos, we can pick this back up tomorrow, can't we? I think 18 months on the mission is worth a little break, don't you? 
Passos put his hands at the top of his thighs, arms akimbo, long stick figure limbs. He seemed to be weighing his options, which battles and when. How about we do five more doors, Passos said. Then we'll take a break, okay? McLeod hesitated a moment, then sighed. The first door was Passos's, nothing. The next was McLeod's, also nothing. The third door triggered an explosion of barking, a big dog from the sound of it, each bark like a mortar round. After several bracing seconds of this, McLeod and Passos moved on. When they knocked the fourth door, a flutter of movement came from inside the courtyard, a door handle catching, a door scraping open, a patter of footsteps approaching the outer door, a young face through the gap, brown eyes, shorn brown hair. Well, hello, Passos said. The face disappeared and the steps retreated. McLeod and Passos heard whispered voices from the open front door, a quick high alto, a dragging soprano, then the tiny steps again. No one's here, okay? said the alto voice through the outer door. Ningen está aquí, ta? McLeod snorted at the familiar phrase. It might have been the very first phrase he had learned to separate out from the rapid slur of Portuguese. Ningen está aquí, ta? And that final contracted ta, that timidness, so typical of the local style, and so tiring. We're not interested. We're not available. We're not even here, okay? But you are there. McLeod said to the boy. What? I said you are there, aren't you? You're someone. Yeah, but my mom's not here. Yeah? Who were you talking to just a second ago? The boy paused, recoursed again to his line. Nobody's here, okay? I don't believe you, Elder McLeod said. Passos turned to him, suddenly furrowed, his dark brows combining in a long, sharp V-shape. Let's go, he mouthed, leaning away from the door. But listen, McLeod continued, we're representatives of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You may know us as the Mormons. Well, anyway, McLeod spoke in a clipped, mock, cheery tone. I'm Elder McLeod, and this is my companion, Elder Passos. Elder is a title, not a name, by the way, in case you're curious. Many people are. But we've come here today with a very special message for you and your mother, She's not here. Of course, of course. But we have a message for the two of you anyway. It's a message about liars and what happens to them in the... Elder! <laughs> a hand clamped McLeod's wrist and he was halfway off his feet. He felt the anger in Passos' grip, tried to shake himself free of it. Let go of me. In the middle of the street, Passos swung him loose and stared. His dark brows creased even sharper. What do you think you're doing? The kid was lying. Of course he was lying, Elder, but you don't say that. You never say that. Is this really how you act? Are you really this green? McLeod stiffened at the word. I'm green. You think I am green? Who knocks doors for two hours right after lunch when the whole damn country is asleep? And I'm green. He turned around and started back up the street. Apostles yelled after him, where do you think you're going? McLeod didn't answer, didn't turn around. He shielded his eyes against the shards of light off the river as it crooked into view. There's no way to do that gracefully. Can you just leave it with the top off? Oh, that's very smart. McLeod waited at a nearby bus stop for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20. 
Had all the bus drivers in Carinha taken siestas too? All of Minas, the entirety of southeast Brazil? And where was Elder Passos? He had failed to follow after him, failed to turn up at the bus stop at all. He had succeeded, in other words, in surprising McLeod. Maybe there was a touch of earth in him after all. The missionary handbook forbade and forbade. No TV, radio, newspapers, etc. No recreational phone calls, etc., etc. But it prescribed nothing so strongly as being separate from your companion. And yet, McLeod checked his watch, craned his head to see as far down the street as he could. Nothing and no one. A touch of earth. Where was that from again? Something by Tennyson, right? Or was it Longfellow? He would have to ask Mom to look it up for him in his next letter home. Why could he never remember anything? Why could he not hold on to knowledge? Already, the yield of years of effort in high school and all the reading and memorizing he'd done on his own, it had dwindled to traces, scraps of language, and most of it floating maddeningly free of its context. Such that someone says now, at some point, and for some reason, that who loves me must have a touch of earth. The low sun makes the color and something else. He would have to check it with his mother. Soon enough, McLeod could check things himself. He could enroll at Boston College or maybe Amherst or maybe even one of the Ivy Leagues. He could at least apply. And then he could take history and literature classes and study facts or study fiction and put behind him this muddy slosh of the two. Six months more, the home stretch. That's where I'll stop. So we have a little bit of time if people want to ask questions. And I know if there's an awkward silence, Al will fill it with something. But after Al, you know, be ready. Please, in the back. Oh, the answer is prosaic, I'm afraid. I was a missionary in Brazil, and I knew that this was the kind of material I could command, and I could shape a story with a lot of authenticity and believability, and that was something that was important to me. So when I started to write a book, um, you know, I talked about how literature is a conversation, and I was so impatient to join that. So I just thought, what material can I master, can I own? And, and that's what led me in this direction. It happens to be very rich material, I think, and it's a great way to kind of, you know, um, demonstrate the ways that, that, that people can uh, try to become one thing um, and, uh, and in the process become something quite different. So it's an interesting story to me, but mostly it was just one I knew. Yeah. Diana. That's a great question. Yeah, well, you're always curious to see what kind of right, you know, how, how um, wide you can um, clear out a space, you know. So, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely interested in uh, exploring that, but the, the next book is like heaven. It's an abstraction, you know, so um, I haven't, uh, I feel like it's, uh, it's probably too young to, to talk about, but it is definitely something um, I think about, you know. Uh, it, it, is my fictional world going to be limited to the kind of experiences that I know or that people close to me have known? Um, I don't know. We'll see. I think there's something to be said for learning about your limits and acknowledging them and working within them. But yeah, I haven't really figured out my limits yet. 
good question, nerve-wracking question. <laughs> Please. I was wondering how you, since it's based on so much of your experience, how you balance between, okay, well, this is what would happen in reality if I'm in that situation, versus, oh, but this would be really great for the story. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Saul Bellow was a writer who drew pretty heavily on his own life, and sometimes his early drafts would, they would use this, the, the nonfiction names even, but as the drafts progressed, um, and more time and distance built up between the writer and the, and the material, uh, I think he was able to um, uh, shape the story more and turn it into more of a cool story. And I think, th at least with this book, my process was somewhat similar. I think the earlier drafts were a lot closer to what really happened. And then, much to my mom's chagrin, because these, these missionaries start behaving or misbehaving much more than I ever did. But I, I started to think, oh, this would be cool if this happened. And you start planning out the kind of architecture of the story without much regard to what happened to you, because you feel alienated from your own experience. All right, here we go, Al. Oh, you were just scratching. No, I have one. I just am waiting. Oh, okay. No? Tim. Uh, so were, there, were there specific other novels or other works of fiction that were on your mind when you were writing this, either as conscious models or just kind of kicking around? Absolutely. I, like I said earlier, literature is a conversation, so I believe very much in drawing on models. And I'm always a little disheartened, actually, when I hear people say, oh, I never read other people's stuff while I'm working because I don't want that voice to bleed into mine, but I think that's what literature is. Anyway, so I was really um, influenced by Willa Cather's novel, um, O Pioneers, and, and, and uh, some of that um, invisible architecture I tried to make visible and learn from it and apply it. Um, and then also the things they carried, kind of the rhythm and the, the incantatory quality of the sentences, and also, you know, a story about young men that somewhat... Um, uh, that's somewhat episodic, and uh, they're thrown together in militaristic circumstances. Sounds a lot like a Mormon mission, you know. So yeah, I was I was studying those two books very consciously. I'll pick you back. Um, so I guess it's a two-parter. What are some of your all-time favorite books, and what are some recent books that you've read that you loved a lot? Um, well, all-time favorite. When when I was 16, I read Catcher in the Rye. And I've read it several times since, and it still is alive. You know, they say a classic is something that yields a multiplicity of meanings over time. And, and Catcher in the Rye certainly has. So I always bristle when people are like, ah, oh, that's a young adult novel. <laughs> I'm like, that's my novel. You know? <laughs> so I still love Catcher in the Rye. But um, uh, I read a, a, a book, this is in the all-time favorite category, called um, Dinner at the Homesick Restaurant. And I, I really want to suggest, after you read Elders, that you look into this book because it's not Ann Tyler's most prominent, but there's something so um, quietly moving about it, and I, I hope I can, um, you know, even approach the kind of poignancy she she uh, achieves in that book. And then something recently that I read that I really loved was um, Hardy's uh, *Test of the D'Urbervilles*. Mm -hmm. I'd never read that, and uh, it's one of the great things about graduate school. It makes you feel guilty for having missed all these classics. So I loved it. I was, it was excellent. Good question. That was a fun one. All right, Al. Um, so, I know somewhat about your biography, um, but I'm wondering if what regard you pay to the church uh, and concern that you have for reception of the book, um, slash the writing process and how that might have helped you understand your own kind of 
way out or into or around the church and your experience with it? Um, did the book, what kind of help did the book give you? And hmm. Are you worried about the last well, not not really uh, to the last question, the lashback, because it, I think the, it, the the novel is suffused with uh, affection, and and anyone who would claim this to be an anti-Mormon novel in any way hasn't read it. Um, I th I think it's neither pro nor nor contra. It's just uh, as I said in response to the first question, I was just looking for material that I could tell an interesting story about. So the story was always in charge. And that meant that sometimes I did have that little sense, self-censor, like, oh, mom's not going to like that. Or, you know, I, I recently convinced my twin sister, who's a very devout Mormon, to read the book. I'm not sure if she will, but she said she will. And I think, oh, you know, maybe that will be, maybe that'll hang in the air between Bryn and some people in her ward. But I really try to push past that and trust that, first of all, you know, people in the privacy of their own minds can, you know, handle a lot of things. The one thing I, I never wanted to do in writing or talking about this book was to presume that my readers couldn't handle something. I mean, that's such an assholishness to me. <laughs> like, there was this kid at my BYU class um, who came, came in from break once and, uh, or, uh, you know, like winter break, and we were all talking about what we'd read, and he said, oh, I read Lolita. It was awesome, but you guys couldn't handle it. Don't read it. <laughs> Like, what is that? You know what I mean? So, so, um, so I turn that self-censor off because it's bad for the writing, but also because I think, you know, if people don't want to read something, they'll just stop reading it, you know? But anyway, any last questions? Please. I, uh, I was wondering about your process of working with your editor and how that was, and was there anything maybe specifically that was revealed to you in that process that elevated the work or surprised you in terms of your development? Um, well, when I was uh, talking to him the first time, I said, you know, one of my, here's a, a, an answer to your question from a few minutes ago. One of my favorite books of all time was um, The Ghost Rider by Philip Roth. I think it's a basically perfect novel. And he was like, oh, that's my favorite Roth novel. So we were kind of like BFF from the start. Um, so we had a great, and, and continue to have a great working relationship. But it was interesting to see how someone who was very kind to me and my work still managed to be tough and say like, you should really cut this by a third, you know, or this this title that you submitted with is not going to work. And so um, you learn to at once be um, thick-skinned, but then very thin-skinned. And um, it might have been someone in this audience who told me this recently, but, you know, artists need to be incredibly thin-skinned in a way to be porous and receive all these stimuli and translate them into art. But then you need to be able to snap out of that and, and learn to accept pretty harsh criticism, um, or criticism that feels harsh because of how much you've invested in the book. So, um, so yeah, he taught me how to do that because I need it to be, I need it to be taught. I was really hoping someone would ask this question so I wouldn't have to. What are your thoughts on booking oh, um, Mormon the musical? I was hoping no one would ask that because I, ha I haven't seen it and oh, I feel... Yeah. I, I feel like a Cretan. No, well, I've I've um, I've heard some of the songs, and it it just it feels uh, something that's um, it yeah it feels friendly enough and not not too hard hitting. Um, uh, but but maybe it's kind of the way that the South Park writers want to have it both ways. Yeah. There's a little bit of that from what I've sensed yeah. in the songs, and. Uh, um, I think this is a kosher story to tell. Tim and I were talking about this once. W once in workshop, when I submitted a piece of fiction, they were like, oh, Book of Mormon musical is, is in town. We should go see that. That's a kind of research for Ryan's fiction. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> nothing, 
Nothing could be tonally more remote from what I just read. You know, that would be like somebody put up a Jewish story and I said, we should go see Fiddler on the Roof. You know what I mean? So I, I, don't, I, don't, I can't speak to the play at all, but um, from what little I know, it does seem to be like in a different universe. I'm not a comic writer. I don't think of myself in that way. The, the affection you're talking about is there, but I think, right, the tone is a completely different universe than yeah. the tone that we're using. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing it's there. The <laughs> people know and care a lot more about Mormonism than they did a few years ago. So <laughs> I hope that will benefit the book. But thanks so much for... Oh, wait, please, one more question. Uh, what was the original medal? Oh, um, it was a, a T.S. Eliot. It was from a T.S. Eliot poem. It was... Um, gosh, I've repressed it. Uh, <laughs> I really can't, I, you know what, I'm drawing a blank, but it was this, it was this long, pretentious, um, yeah, it was from one of uh, Eliot's Four, four Cordos, and uh, it was just something we submitted with, and then uh, we dropped it very, very soon after. So we like elders a lot better, and I'm sorry, I can't remember. <laughs> are there other other um, contemporary um, books that feature like a Mormon character? And when she brought up the Book of Mormon, I was like, well, that's, yeah, there's another art piece that's out there, but is there anything else that you know? Um, Brady Udall, right? Um, he's, a, he's a fairly prominent writer who's kind of uh, nibbled around the edges of Mormonism sometimes, and uh, uh, yeah, I, can't, I can't think of too many other books that have had much mainstream appeal. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's an area of the world, with, you know, with a lot of room, with rent, you know, room to spare, so... You know, that was a total surprise to me. The book's a week old, uh -huh. and when the, the book showed up, I was so taken with those end pages. Um, so it's, it's the designer, Ben Wiseman. It was just his kind of stroke of inspiration. I think it's, it's just kind of a riff on the exoticism of Brazil. Without, yeah. without exploiting it, without trading in it. So that's why I really like the title and the, those end pages particularly. That's good. Yeah. When Ryan was talking to me before, I, he said, I don't think I'll wait for 15 minutes. And, and I said, that's good because people's attention spans are short. And, yeah, but I actually wanted to hear more. <laughs> so um, it was great. Um, let's give him a hand again. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.